We're in a sermon series based on Jesus' radical, countercultural Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to his revolutionary teaching on the topic of prayer. So what does Jesus have to say to us that's so revolutionary about this topic of prayer? Well, to find out, I'm gonna invite you to stand right now for the reading of scripture recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter seven. And I'll be reading verses seven through 12. This is the word of God. Let's give our attention to it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. So based on this teaching of Jesus, if you today were to ask God to do something very special for you and you were confident that he would give you the desires of your heart, what would you want him to do? Well, I've been thinking about this, so let me throw out some possibilities. Knowing that one in six women of childbearing age struggle with the pain of infertility, perhaps some here would want to ask God that by this time next year, he would give you the desire of your heart and you would be holding your child. Others here may be struggling in a marriage situation and you would want God to bring some healing to you. Things are not going all that well, communication is down, it just isn't fun anymore. Others of you would long that God would fix your finances or help you to find a new job or end your loneliness by giving you at least one good friend this year. There are all kinds of possibilities that we would certainly want to bring to God's attention. And the reality is that many of us have these pressing needs, we have these hurts, these serious problems that ravage our lives. And yet we don't necessarily bring them to the attention of God in terms of prayer. And the question is, why would that be the case? Well, actually, we're gonna, no doubt there are many reasons, and we're gonna be looking at some of those reasons this morning. But today in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us this incredible prayer promise. And I suspect for Jesus' original audience, they're thinking, wow, this could not have come at a better time. Because Jesus has shared throughout the Sermon on the Mount, up until now at least, a standard that certainly seems impossible. Just to give you an idea of things, uh, let me remind you of some of the major themes that Jesus has already brought to our attention. Notice this chart. He begins the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter five, the initial verses there, by describing the character qualities of Christian people. And through eight statements commonly called 
the Beatitudes, Jesus says things like his kingdom followers are meek and merciful and they're pure in heart and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we're thinking, really? And that's just the beginning of his sermon. So in the next section, Jesus proceeds to point out our influence in the world. And he indicates that we, his, his kingdom followers, we are the salt of the earth, those that arrest moral and spiritual decay by our actions of compassion and our stand for biblical justice. And we are the world's light bearers as we proclaim a gospel message. So he doesn't say that about government, doesn't say that about technology or education. He says that about us. We are part as his kingdom followers of those who are the earth's salt and the world's light. And we're thinking, really? Yeah. So then Jesus launches into the longest section in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> uh, on our authority, a Christian's authority. And he indicates to us that he expects us as his followers to address anger issues, to certainly regulate our sexual desires. He tells us to how we're to handle marital conflict. We're to be truth tellers. We're to avoid revenge and we're to love our enemies. Yeah, right. And he goes on to say we're to do that by the standard of our authority, which is the Bible itself. Yeah, now that's, that's just chapter five, okay? Then we launch into chapter six and he gives us some instruction on how we're to express our devotional lives. And he indicates whether we're giving, praying, fasting, whether we're doing what we're doing right now, engaged in worship corporately, that we're to do it in ways that are contrary to the hypocrites, that is ways that are marked by sincerity and reality. Well, then he indicates what is to be our attitude toward money and our possessions. And he indicates we're to put God first. We're to seek him and his kingdom. Not, and then he goes on to say, don't even be anxious about this stuff. If God cares, for example, for the birds, and he does, he's certainly gonna care for you because you're his children. So you don't have to be anxious. Anybody here ever struggle besides me with anxiety? Yeah, I think we all do one time or another. So that's that section. Then in chap chapter seven, he begins by talking about that we need to avoid a critical judgmental spirit, where, for example, we question people's motives. You know, they, we observe some action and we interpret that, interpret that action as fact. We know the motives, we're convinced, we know what's behind all of that. And then we draw these premature negative conclusions about people. And we pass on those conclusions as if they are fact to our closest of friends. We are judging and Jesus says we're not to do that. Wow, I mean, you may feel like his, Jesus' original audience. There's just no way, humanly speaking, that we can carry this out. To which Jesus would say, you know what? You are absolutely correct. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. What an incredible promise. And it could not have come to many of us at a better time. Because Jesus is not only aware of the fact that this is an overwhelming standard, 
but he also knows that from day to day, many of us are dealing with pressures and problems and hurts and struggles. And so he's encouraging us here to pray confidently, boldly, by giving us these amazing prayer promises. But in spite of these amazing promises, this is not a passage entirely free of difficulty. As a matter of fact, the questions and problems that grow out of this passage can be so strong that they actually prevent us from believing them to be true and therefore implementing them unless these prayer problems are addressed. And so that's what I intend to do this morning. If you have your sermon notes, that card that we give out uh, as you enter the worship center, you will notice on the reverse side from the front there that we're gonna be talking about two major areas today, some of these prayer problems, and then secondly, we went on to consider some positive lessons on prayer that this passage uh, brings to our attention. So first of all, confronted by these amazing promises, I mean, Jesus goes on to say, everyone who asks receives. We're going, are you kidding me? Those who seek, find. To those who knock, the door will be open. I mean, there are some prayer problems that emerge from this that we need to consider. Let me mention three. Here's the first that can be summed up in the phrase, prayer is improper. And maybe this is what you would say. The argument goes something like this. You know, this encouragement to pray really presents us with a false picture of God. Yeah, it implies that he needs to be told what we're lacking because he's ignorant, so we have to tell him or he needs to be pressured into giving us things, and so he talks about Jesus does asking and seeking and knocking, pressuring God into giving us things. Whereas Jesus has already indicated in the Sermon on the Mount that our Father knows our needs before we even ask, and he cares about us. Besides, the argument continues, God can't be bothered, can he, with our petty little concerns? And why should we think that his gifts depend on our asking? Is that how a parent works? Does a parent always wait for the child to say, Dad, Mom, I've got this need, before the parent responds? Well, of course not. So putting all of these kinds of statements together, the idea is prayer seems to be improper. That's the argument. So I'm wondering if you've ever struggled along these lines where you wonder, why, why do I have to tell God what's going on in my life since he's, he knows everything? And it seems with these statements that I have to somehow pressure God into giving me what I really want. Well, if so, maybe it'll be of some encouragement to you to realize that the reason why God's giving depends on our asking is not because he's ignorant until we tell him, or that he's reluctant until we sort of badger him. No, the reason for our persistence in asking really has to do with us and not with God. So the question is not whether God is ready to give, the question oftentimes is, are we really ready to receive? So prayer is, is not improper. But, says the questioner, Rich, what do you do with those stories, some of those parables that Jesus tells about prayer? You know, Rich, like the one in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 10, where Jesus tells the story about this um, guy who's gone to bed with his family. It's late at night. It's like after midnight. 
and some friend of his, a neighbor, comes knocking on his door. Hey, get out of bed. I have a friend who's come from a great distance. He's staying with us. I don't have any food. Please get out of bed and help me. Do you have any food you can give me to share with my friend? Oh, come on, man. I've gone to bed. My kids are in bed. Leave me alone. The guy keeps on knocking. And so Jesus in this story tells how this guy is going to get out of bed. He's going to get the neighbor some food. Why? Because he wants to get back to sleep. And interestingly enough, Jesus ends that story with the exact same promise that we have here in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And so to some, the story seems to suggest that we need to wear God down until he gives in to us. And isn't that a false view of God? Then they would say prayer is improper. But wait a minute. Jesus doesn't say that God is like the friend who didn't want to get out of bed. That's not the view we should have of him. Jesus' purpose in telling us the story is to point out the radical distinction that exists between this cranky neighbor and the character of God. In other words, it's a lesson in contrast. God wants to bless, but he also desires that we demonstrate earnestness. And so if this cranky neighbor is going to get out of bed eventually to give the guy some food, by contrast, how much more will your heavenly father, Jesus is arguing, respond to your bold persistence in prayer? So prayer is not improper. Jesus says to ask, seek, knock, because prayer is the way that a sovereign God has determined to express we get to express our need as well as our sense of dependence upon him. Okay, that brings us to a second prayer promise, and maybe this one is closer to some areas where you've had some struggle. Prayer is unnecessary, meaning what? Well, we look around and see lots of people getting on fine without prayer. In fact, they seem to receive without prayer the very things that we receive with prayer. You think of the student who makes starting varsity of his high school basketball uh, team, doesn't bother to pray, Lord, please help me to get on this team. No, it's his skill. It's his ability and his perseverance, his, his discipline to work at it that gets him on the team. You think of the single adult who has a nice car, great apartment. Why? Because she prayed about it? No. How did she get it all? Well, she got it because she has a wonderful paying job, which she got, not by prayer, how? She gets the job by following up leads, presenting a great resume, and uh, having strong references. So she gets the job. Or you think of the, the mother who has a safe delivery of her child because of the skill of the physician and the nursing care that she gets, not because she even bothered to pray about it. Or how about this one? The family that decides, you know what? Let's go south and be snowbirds for the next couple of months. We'll come back maybe in April when the weather is warmed up in Minnesota. And they're able to do that, not because they prayed about it, but because they have great paying jobs. So all of this tempts us to say, you know, prayer? Prayer doesn't seem to make any difference. It's just like wasted breath. 
But wait a minute, in thinking about this question, as one of my favorite writers, John Stott, describes, we need to distinguish between the gifts of God as creator and the gifts of God as our Heavenly Father. Or what Stock was on to, to describe, God's creation gifts and his redemption or his salvation gifts. So, in fact, as, you know, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out that God causes his son to shine on the evil and the good, whether they're praying about it or not. And he causes, um, he goes on to say, the rain to water the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous. So none of these gifts is dependent on whether people acknowledge even God's existence, let alone pray to him. But God's salvation gifts are very different. For example, when it comes to salvation, the Bible says in Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the word saved means to be delivered, means to be rescued from a situation of danger. And of course, the great danger that we're all in by nature, by birth in this world, is that we're exposed to the just judgment and condemnation of a holy God. We stand under his curse. And so if you long for deliverance from the judgment and the wrath of a holy God, you're going to have to call on the name of the Lord. That's prayer. Or how about some of these other blessings that Jesus has been talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount? In the previous paragraph, he's talked about our avoiding a judgmental spirit. That requires love and patience so you can take the speck of sin out of your brother or sister's eye, having dealt with your own sinful issues. Or he says, when it comes to your bearing witness to other people, that requires discernment. Are they even interested in Christianity or are they going to get you know, very irritated if you start sharing matters of faith. So Jesus says, don't give dogs what is sacred or throw your pearls to pigs. He's talking about like the gospel. In fact, it includes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So going back to the passage in Luke's gospel, the story that Jesus tells about this neighbor who doesn't initially want to get out of bed and Jesus gives us the same threefold promise, ask, seek, knock. He ends that passage by saying, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to whom? To those who ask him, that's prayer. So for these gifts, we must pray. And we'll never receive these spiritual blessings or the power of God in our lives unless we're asking for them. Okay, but what about God's creation gifts? I mean, doesn't Jesus earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in the Lord's Prayer instruct us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread? Yes, he does. But we pray for our daily bread, not because we're afraid if we don't, we're gonna starve to death because there are millions, if not billions of people around this world who have their daily needs met, who never bothered to pray. We pray for our daily bread because it's a way as believers that we get to express our dependence upon God. So prayer is not unnecessary. All right, here's a third issue that may be, again, more in line with where some of you have had some struggles. Prayer is unproductive. In other words, it doesn't work. It goes like this. 
yeah, Jesus says to ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to us. Apparently that doesn't apply to me because I've asked, sought, and knocked, and no answer. Person may go on and say, yeah, I prayed for my husband to stop his drinking, came home drunk again last night, or I've been praying for a job, but you know what? No one wants to hire a 60-year-old middle manager. Or I've been praying about my wife's depression. It's gotten worse since I started to pray. Or I prayed for a loved one to be healed. She died. Or I prayed that God would give us a nice sunny day so I could move into my new apartment. And we had a snowstorm. Yeah, okay. So the conclusion is prayer doesn't work. And so oftentimes, confidence in God has been shattered. And just hearing this prayer promise is a reminder of what you ask God to do for you and it seems as though he didn't come through. So how do we respond to such a problem in light of this seemingly open-ended promise by Jesus? Well, I think the best way is to understand it's a very emotionally charged issue, by the way, we recognize that, but it's to remember that these promises are not unconditional. Ask, seek, and knock is not some kind of blank check with no strings attached. The Bible gives us conditions. For example, it tells us that the only people who have the, the right to pray to God in the first place are Christ's followers. Did you know that? They're the only ones. So we get to call God Father. Romans chapter five, Paul argues as a result of the fact we now have right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have access, he says, access to him, access into this grace in which we now stand. But here's another condition. Jesus argues that human parents here would never give a stone or a snake to their kids who want bread or fish, right? What if the child persisted in that? Through ignorance, foolishness, you know, the child, I really want a rock to eat, or I really want a snake, yeah. Well, no parent is gonna buy into that. Well, the same is true with respect to the character of God. Our Heavenly Father is never gonna give us something that's harmful, even if we were to persist in asking about it. He's only gonna give us his good gifts. So if we ask for good gifts, he gives them to us, but he's the only one who knows what those good gifts are. We can ask, but at the same time, we need to acknowledge the fact that only God knows the difference. And so we can thank him that the granting of our requests is conditional, not only on our asking, seeking, and knocking, but also on what, if what we desire is really best for us and best for his plan for his church and for his kingdom. I think by way of example of the story of a great Christian leader, some would argue maybe the most outstanding theologian and philosopher that the church has ever had, and that would be the fourth century theologian, Augustine. Born and raised in North Africa, far from God. His mom was a believer, but he was far from God as a, as a teenager. He's into a life of, of sensual indulgence. He gets one woman pregnant, living with somebody else, a lot of different women. And um, he announces one day to his mother that he wants to move from North Africa to the city of Rome. 
And the mother begins to pray, oh Lord, please don't let my son move to Rome. I mean, that's like Sin City. He'll never become a Christ follower if he moves to Rome. Well, guess what? He moves to Rome. God does not answer her request. He moves to Rome, and there he gets involved in a life of sensuality to the point where it sickens him, and he begins to realize there's got to be something more to life than this, and he gets exposed to a Christian pastor who he connects well with, and in time he comes to saving faith. Even though God did not answer the mother's prayer. And so Jesus says, our father gives good gifts, yeah, but he knows what those good gifts are, so prayer is not a waste. All right, if you're still struggling in spite of, you know, maybe your struggle is another area that we didn't talk about today, or you don't think I've really adequately addressed your particular concern, I just want to encourage you to continue to study, to think, to talk to some mature believers in this church that we can wrestle with your issues and uh, hopefully point you in a direction of some hope and some healing. But having considered the prayer problems, let's move ahead to talk about some prayer principles, four of them that emerge from this passage. Here's the first of the four. Prayer presupposes knowledge. In other words, since God gives good gifts in accordance with his will, we need to learn what his will is, right? So how do we do that? Well, sometimes God's will is determined by common sense. As an example, think of a husband who needs to go to the airport MSP to pick up his wife who's coming in from yet another business trip. He can't remember, is she coming in from LA or you know San Francisco and She's always flying on these cheap, you know, the cheapest fare, and so he doesn't know even remember what airline. So he's looking at the monitor in the airport. He knows she's coming in around 7 p.m. Okay, 6.55, Delta C7. Oh, and so he begins to pray, Lord, help her to be on that flight. Well, you know, yeah, I think you get the point already, don't you? Yeah. I mean, either she's on the plane or she's not, right? So if she's not on the plane, she would not, his praying is not going to put her on the plane, right? So perhaps he should have prayed, Lord, help me not to be anxious about this because Jesus has already given instruction about that. First Peter 5, 7 says we can cast all of our cares on the Lord because he cares for us. Or he, for that matter, he he could have prayed if she's already landed that, uh, you know, that the Lord would help, her, help him to find her. But sometimes we ask for things that common sense suggests you know, we, we shouldn't ask for. It's like the student who prays, Lord, help that I will pass my math exam when the test has already been turned in. You know, it's a little bit late in the game at that point. God is not going to correct your wrong answers to those math problems. He's just, it doesn't work that way. So, one, we need to, prayer presupposes knowledge, asking, seeking, knocking according to the will of God, and that means certainly exercising common sense, but in addition to that, it especially means having a knowledge of God's word, the Bible. For example, God gives us commands in the Bible that are to shape our prayer lives. 
Let me just give you an example of one. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says that believers are not to be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. And while that might have various applications, it certainly applies to the most intimate of all human relationships, marriage. The reality is God understands that Christian faith it's not something that we just do for an hour or so in a church building on a Sunday morning. It's a way of life. It impacts us 24-7. And so if we're praying, Lord, help that my relationship with this non-Christian will be blessed of you, that's not going to work. It doesn't happen that way. And then, of course, in addition to commands, the Bible also gives us principles. So maybe you're not happy in your job and you've got this new offer, but you're under a contract. So what do you do? Well, Psalm 15:4 says that God is pleased when a person keeps his or her commitments even when it costs. And so for a person to say, well, I prayed about it and I have peace. Well, it's not a peace that comes from God because that would be the violated principle of scripture. So, what I'm saying is that this prayer promise of asking, seeking, and knocking is not an open-ended promise. It presupposes knowledge which comes not only by common sense, but by a knowledge of scripture. So a second prayer principle from this passage is that it presupposes desire. And Jesus draws that to our attention in a couple of ways. Verse 7 seems to be drawing our attention to this ascending scale of urgency. You know, first you ask, and if it doesn't come through, you seek, and if that doesn't work, you knock. It's like the parent. Yeah, I mean, a parent understands this, right? If the child has a desire, comes asking, Mom, Dad, can I have this go on a sleepover? Or if child can't immediately find you, go seeking for you. And if you're in the bedroom and the bedroom door is closed, you know, knocks away until finally the child is, is able to express those concerns. So in a similar way, Jesus is indicating that we need to express desire. And one way he teaches us that is by this ascending scale. The other way is by these verbs. Ask, seek, and knock are all in a tense. That means keep on doing it. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And so prayer is the means that God has established by which we express to him the desires of our hearts. And again, this is not to pressure him into giving us something that he's reluctant to give us. It's to demonstrate that we mean business. Think, for example, of a parent who says, you know, I'm not spending enough time with my family. Or I want something in my life straightened out. So begins to pray about it. Two days later, has forgotten all about it, you know. And so we give up. Well, God wants us to see our persistence. He wants to see that we mean business. So prayer also pre, um, presupposes um, this matter of desire. So knowledge, desire, faith is the third one. And this seems to be the point of Jesus' little story here about um, imagining a child coming to the father for something to eat. So if you're a parent, you get this. You know, the child is hungry and comes to you and says, can I have a grilled cheese sandwich? 
Well, you're going to go outside and dig under the snow and find a rock and say, here, kid, munch on this. Well, of course not. Or if the child says, can we go fishing? Yeah, sure, I know a great swampy, snake-infested place where we can go, a place of danger. Well, of course you're not going to do that. So Jesus is arguing, maybe we're imperfect. You know, we are imperfect and we're sinful, but when one of our own, one of our own really has a need, we try to do it right. You're hungry? Let's go to a great burger place, you know? Or you want to go fishing? I know a great spot. So Jesus is arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If human parents who are imperfect know how to give good gifts to their kids, how much more will your perfect heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? So persist in prayer, confident that your heavenly father will answer the desires of your heart in his own way and in his time. Well, that brings us to the final prayer principle, which is the prayer leads to life change, real change. So verse 12 begins with the word so, or your version may have therefore, indicating that what Jesus is about to say is linked to what he has just been saying about prayer. So verse 12 is commonly called the golden rule. Here it is. So, in light of what I've just said about prayer, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, in many ways, this is really a great summary of what Jesus has been saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So, do you want others to forgive you? You forgive them. You want others to be honest with you? You're a truth teller. You want others to treat you with kindness instead of being judgmental? Then you're that way with them. But the reality is, you and I will never carry out the golden rule without implementing the verses before it of asking, seeking, and knocking. So let me take you back to the question I asked you at the very beginning of our teaching this morning. If you could ask God to do something very special for you today, what would you want him to do? Are you willing to ask according to his will? Prayer presupposes knowledge. Are you willing to continue to seek after the Lord and what he has for you presupposes desire. And are you confident that your father is gonna grant what is good for you in his time? Prayer presupposes faith. And are you willing to have God transform your life? Prayer leads to real change. So I wanna end the teaching this morning by inviting you to do what Jesus is here urging us to do and that is to pray to pray especially for the matters right now that are on your heart. So let's turn to him and let's do just that. Let's pray together. So please, in this moment of quietness, take a moment to realize you're coming into the presence of your heavenly Father. And he longs that you talk with him about the desires that are on your heart right now.
Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer, for your promise to give good gifts to your children. And so we wait on you for your answers to our desires. May we trust you for your answers in your time. We're asking you to do that because you're our caring Father and because we've offered these matters to you in the name and for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.